Okay, we're in uh, Luke 8, so let me pray, and, and then we'll get started. I assume everybody can hear me. Nobody's complaining. So uh, with, with that, we'll, we'll bow for prayer. Father, thank you for uh, this good and uh, beautiful day that you've given to us. We're excited about uh, the opportunity of fellowship, though we much, much prefer in-person uh, and we hope that day is not far off. We are content for the moment with uh, being able to see each other on the screen and being able to hear each other and to continue our study together in the Gospel of Luke. So bless us today. Uh, speak to us through the Holy Spirit. I thank you for everyone who's here and pray your blessing upon each one. Keep all uh, here today healthy and strong. Protect their families. And, uh, Father, we again pray that you would bring this virus to a an end and that very soon. Uh, Father, we're grateful today to hear that Bob Schwartz is improving and indeed enough to where he might get to go home tomorrow, and that's great news. And we do hope that he will get to do that. We'll continue to improve. So, Father, bless us now. We love you and adore you. We thank you for the study of your word. Guide us and direct us, I pray, in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 8, last, this is the parable of the sower. Most of you are probably pretty familiar with this passage of scripture. We looked at verses um, 1 through 3 last week, just by way of introduction. It's kind of a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. We also had the opportunity of looking at the names of some ladies who are uh, great supporters of Jesus' ministry and uh, often travel with the disciples. And so with that, we came to verse 4. And so that's where I want to begin reading. We'll read verse 4 through 15 and then talk about it. So uh, picture Jesus talking to a large crowd, perhaps next to a field where a farmer is sowing seed. I'd really like to think that Jesus perhaps even had the opportunity to gesture toward the farmer as he sowed the seed. Um, some of us are old enough to have sown seed by hand rather than uh, using farm implements. So you're also familiar with this. And so here's the way Jesus describes the parable. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was gathering the seed, scattering the seed rather, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. The no moisture part sounds familiar to most of us, doesn't it? Although we did have a good rain the other day, but uh, maybe a while before we have another one. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Hear with spiritual ears. His disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. 
Some are not going to understand who Jesus is or any of his teaching, and certainly not his sacrificial death on the cross, while others do, you and I in that number. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. All right, we've got that. Those along the path, the seed that is on the path, are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Okay, uh, as we look at this parable, we understand as the sower of the, the farmer is the sower of the seed, and the seed is the word of God. Now, the parables of Jesus have one main meaning, meaning, and uh, the parables are stories from real life that illustrate a spiritual truth and help us understand a spiritual truth. Uh, parables are are a unit, a story as a whole, not intended that there be ten stories in one, but one main point to the story. And then Jesus explains the symbols in this particular parable. So picture a farmer sowing the seed. Jesus may have very well gestured to someone at a nearby, uh, at a nearby field. This story makes imminent sense in an agrarian society. And I think it makes sense to us too. The path is the, the place where people travel next to the field. The ground has been packed down. It's hard. The seed can't penetrate. It just lays on top of, uh, of the path and it becomes a feast for the birds as they swoop down and pick up the seed that is on the path. Um, the rocky ground is where the seed gets in among the rocks and perhaps just beneath the surface of the soil and may spring up quickly, but because there's no depth to the roots, the hot sun uh, causes the plant to wither. And then among thorns, the seed cast among thorns will be easily choked out by the fast-growing thorns. Um, most of us who have a yard are familiar with that kind of thing, whether it's thorns or crabgrass or whatever that grows and and chokes out what we really want to grow. And then there's the good soil, which yielded a great crop. So Jesus says in the eighth verse, listen, exercise spiritual discernment. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Work at listening. Work at listening. Um, I think a, a message I'm getting there in, in this parable, which is certainly not the main point, but it is work at being spiritually discerning. So pay attention, listen carefully to what is being said. Uh, that would certainly be true when we're listening to people expound or teach uh, the word of God. We want to listen very carefully to what they're saying 
so that we can be spiritually discerning. Because certainly today in the media, television, particularly is what I'm thinking about, um, there is a wide variety of teaching and preaching. And, and much of it is God edifying and spot on. But there also is a significant amount that is not. And we want to be very, want to be very careful to what we listen to. So what does it mean? Well, the seed is the word. The sower is anyone who shares the word of God. Don't think in terms strictly of a preacher or an evangelist or even a missionary. Uh, This could apply to anybody who shares the word of God in any form of witness or teaching or preaching. Yes, but any way that we share the word of God, then we are a sower of the seed. Now, the first of the soils, the first three soils remind us of three enemies of the word of God, because this is spiritual warfare. We, we are aware of that we are in a spiritual warfare, and Paul expounds upon that at length in Ephesians chapter 6, when he tells us to put on the full armor of God. So in verse 12, we discover that an enemy of the word is the devil, who will do anything in his power to stop the hearing of the word of God. Uh, Have you ever been in a service where maybe the pastor reaches a crucial point or in a Sunday school class where here is a critical moment and uh, all of a sudden a baby starts crying or the train comes rolling by or two people in front of you get up to go to the bathroom or someone has a coughing fit, or something happens to distract people's attention to the Word of God. That's every teacher-preacher's nightmare uh, when we're in the middle. And it's not most of us who've taught, as many of you have, or preached, have learned not to be distracted by what's going on. Often people will say, did you hear such and such during the service? And I'll say, no, I didn't. so I preach long enough to where things like that don't distract me, but often I can look out and tell that my audience has been distracted, and that's always very concerning. So the devil has clever ways to distract us, uh, to divert our attention uh, from the Word of God, and to literally snatch the Word of God from uh, from our hearing. So that's the point of of the uh, seed on the hard ground. Then the second enemy would be considered testing or or persecution that will cause some to fall away. And and Jesus is saying, don't turn away. But it happens when uh, the seed falls among the rock and there's no depth. There's no depth. The roots can't go down very far. So the hot sun, illustrative perhaps of persecution or hard times, comes and the plant withers. And so the point there is that often in testing or persecution, people wither in their fellowship uh, of the Lord. Now in verse 14, as he talks about the thorns that grow up, he is really pointing the picture at worldly pleasures. Uh, he, he actually says that pretty clearly choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. 
and they do not mature. So we get distracted by worldly things that divert our attention from from the word. And literally the word is choked out in our hearts and in our lives. But then uh, the last soil is what, what we want to be sure is true of us. The soil is fertile. The seed is planted. The roots go deep and the plants flourish. Or in other words, we flourish. Good soil, receptive hearts. We listen. We obey. We take it into the depths of our soul. So hold the scripture and bear fruit. Hold the scripture and bear fruit. I've noticed that you and I are totally responsible for number four. We're totally responsible for having that fertile heart, receiving the word, paying attention to it, holding on to it. Whereas in, in verse 12, we've got the, the birds, Satan against us. In the second, there's persecution or hard times. And in the third, there's worldly pleasures. All three of those vying for our attention or seeking to destroy the word of God from penetrating deep into our hearts. So you and I are responsible. Let's make sure that our hearts are fertile and open and receptive to the word of God. So we might bear fruit. So that's the, that's the story, the parable of, of the sower. And uh, I've always loved that parable. Well, what comes next? Verses 16 through 18, a lamp on a stand. So are you ready? Look at verse 16. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. So if if you're wondering in verse 16 and 17, is he talking about me being a light, or is he talking about the Bible? He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the word, and that becomes clear in verse 18. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. So he's here. In using a lamp on a stand as an illustration, he's referring to the word of God as a light. It becomes clear in verse 18. The word reveals. Uh, light reveals, doesn't it? Um, you get up in the middle of the night. You turn on the light to go uh, to the restroom. And uh, all of a sudden, that bug scurries across the floor that you didn't know was in your house. The light revealed it. It's probably been there for a while, but you didn't know it. But the light reveals it. A light reveals um, imperfections. You, you go to stand before a mirror. You turn on the light. And, oh, my goodness, all of a sudden, you see things that... Uh, you wish you didn't see that new wrinkle or that smudge or the hair that, why haven't I had my hair cut or had my hair fixed? Well, right now we all know why, but, uh, all, the light just reveals, reveals things. 
and it also reveals beauty. And so what Jesus is saying is the word is a light and it reveals and truth, everything that's true all comes out in the wash. You ever use that term? Um, uh, my sister will probably affirm this from our mother. Uh, my mother, I've said this before, you've heard me. My mother's favorite Bible verse was, your sins will find you out. <laughs> I know it had to be because she, she quoted it to me innumerable times as I was growing up. And uh, you know what? It's true. And it's true because the word is the light and the, the light reveals reality. And so what Jesus is saying to us is the more we hear, the more we receive, the more we receive, the more like Christ himself we will look. The more we will live in a way that's pleasing and honoring to him, bring glory to him. Now, um, let me encourage you. Don't get lazy with the word of God. Don't get lazy with the word of God. Uh, It's easy to do, and I suspect if we were all fully honest this morning, we would say, yeah, there there have been times in my life when I've been lazy with the Word of God. And by that I mean we just stop reading it, uh, we stop studying it, or maybe we read just a little bit once and again, but not very often, whereas our habit has been that we read it every day, we have a quiet time, we're devoted to the Word of God, and then, you know, we just get lazy. We don't wake up, I'm convinced as believers, we don't wake up one morning, sit up in our bed and say, you know what, I'm tired of the Bible, so I'm just going to get lazy with the Word of God, and I'm going to start today. Nobody does that, I don't think. But we can say, you know what, I'm I'm running behind today, or I just don't feel like reading, or I didn't get enough sleep, so... And we skip a day, and then next thing we know, we've skipped two days, and then the next thing we know, we've skipped three days. And what we what we found is we've not lost our salvation, but we have found that we've gotten lazy with the Word of God. And it does affect us. It has a tremendous effect on our lives, our feelings, the way we live. Um, and so don't get lazy with the Word of God. If you find yourself moving away from your habitual reading of the word, then grab hold of your Bible, grab a hold of your Bible and say, whoa, I'm not going to let myself go there. I'm going to be devoted to scripture on a, on a daily basis. Don't get lazy with the word of God. And aren't we blessed? Aren't we blessed? Jesus was taught was talking to people, probably many of whom could not read. And even if they were able to read, they didn't have copies of the Bible. The scripture of that time, which would have been the Old Testament, was kept in the synagogue or in the big in the big house in Jerusalem, not at not at your house. You didn't get to carry around a copy of the scripture, and that has been true for centuries until the printing press came along, which, in my humble estimation, was one of the top five events in human history. Was the advent of the printing press. Now, you might say, well, I think of five things more important than that. Mm, Think about it. At least as far as the spread of Christianity has been concerned, 
uh, there's not much more important than than the invention of the printing press. And because of that, you and I have the Bible in our hands. And I bet most of you have multiple copies of the Bible in your house. We are so blessed. And certainly for us, we have no excuse um, for not reading the Word of God and no excuse to get lazy with the Word. Okay, now let's go to verse 19, Jesus and his family. Now, a lot of people read this these these three verses, and they get really upset. And they say, what a horrible thing for Jesus to say about his mama and his brothers. No, don't, no, 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 no need to be, no need to have that kind of feeling. Let's, let's look and see what Jesus said. Verse 19 of chapter 8. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And and some people just leap automatically to say that's an insult to his mother. No, it isn't. It is not an insult to his mother. Don't see this as an attack on Jesus' family. Rather, Christian, rather See this as an elevation in stature of Jesus' followers, the true family of God. He's not denigrating his family. He's elevating those who are his followers. Now, also understand that his brothers, including James, the eventual pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Whoops, let me go backtrack. The first church in Jerusalem did not believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe. Now, I think Mary had that comprehension based on what the angels had, the angel had told her. But James and the other brothers, the rest of the family, did not believe he was at the Messiah, the, the Messiah at this point. What caused them to change their mind? The resurrection. That's what caused them to change their mind. And, of course, for James... The transformation was dramatic. He becomes the pastor in Jerusalem and also the author of one of the great books of the Bible. Now, um, here's what is recorded in Mark's gospel. I don't want us to miss this because Luke doesn't give this much detail. But in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, here's what Mark writes. When his family heard what he was doing, his teaching, his family heard about it, they went, listen to this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. So the reality of the situation is that James and his brothers think Jesus is crazy. He's lost his mind. He's unbalanced. And we've got to go and get him and take charge of him. And we've got to keep him at home. We've got to lock him up in the closet. We can't let him out about because they, and, and also I think you can understand, they're probably, they're probably some embarrassment on their part. They're probably thinking, why did we have a brother that does things like this? It smirches the family name. So uh, with, with that in mind, Jesus is saying to us a commitment to follow Jesus, to obey him, creates a higher loyalty even than that found in the closest earthly 
relationships. He is not disparaging his family. His love for his mother is obvious as you continue to read scripture, particularly seeing what happens at the crucifixion. But as we grow up and grow older, our relationships with other believers will often, think about it, this is true, will often be deeper and closer than our relationship with unbelieving family members. I'm not saying you don't love your unbelieving family members. Certainly, I hope you do. But understand there is this spiritual dimension that causes us to have a deeper, closer relationship with other believers, and we'll call that locally the church, causes us to have a closer relationship than we than we do with unbelieving members of our family. And I think if you reflect on that, you would probably say that's true. That's true. I, I'm closer to some of the women and men in my Sunday school class than I am to some of my relatives who, who don't know the Lord. I suspect that's true of all of us. And the local church is a family. We're united by belief and obedience. Now, let's go on to verse 22, and we'll find uh, Jesus' power over over nature. This is a great chapter. We, we get a wide variety of events in this eighth chapter. Jesus' teaching and Jesus' authority over uh, nature and over over sickness and over death. Now, look at verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him. He's sleeping right through the storm. They woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, I believe it's Mark has them saying, don't you care that we drown? (laughs) He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Now, that term, the storm subsided and all was calm gives a picture of immediacy. In other words, there we go. Just like that, sea stopped. And Jesus says to them, where's your faith? In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Okay, this is Sea of Galilee. The term here is lake but it's called the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Um, you know this from your scriptural background, from your biblical backgrounds, that the Sea of Galilee is below sea level and the winds come down from the surrounding mountains and sweep across the lake, sweep across the sea. And though I've never personally seen a squall there, I'm, I'm confident that they can be pretty stout. Maybe some of you have seen them. Uh, so much so that these veteran fishermen are scared to death because water is swamping the boat and it looks for all the world like they're going to drown, that the boat's going to go down. 
and they're going to be in big, big trouble. Even those among them who were strong swimmers wouldn't have a chance out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus is asleep. The professional fishermen who have probably experienced squalls a number of times, they're scared to death, but Jesus is asleep in the boat. Uh, I'm thinking this must have been a pretty fierce storm or they would have simply ridden it out with no fear because they'd done it before. But this time they're scared. This is a, this is a big deal. Um, if you're ever flying on a plane and you all of a sudden hear the pilot start screaming from the cockpit, that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> it's probably bad news for everybody on board. Well, these veteran fishermen are scared to death. So they wake Jesus up and has no trouble sleeping through the whole thing as the son of God. They wake him up and uh, they say, do something. Now, their astonishment shows in the text, but understand they knew he could do something. That's why they woke him up. They didn't wake him up just so he could join in the, 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 the club of the miserable. They woke him up because they knew he had the power to do something, and he did. And he rebuked the winds and the waves, and the term there pictures an immediate cessation of the wind and the wave. Boom, all of a sudden the sea is calm. Now, if you, um, many of you take a shower and, and you know, I, I don't know when la- the last time I got into the bathtub, I, I take a shower every day. Uh, and that, so that's many of it, but some of you either daily or at least uh, occasionally like to forsake the shower and get in the bathtub. So try this out next time you get the bathtub. Just get the water to swirling. I mean, not enough to flood your floor, but get the water to swirling and then see if you can get it to stop immediately. You won't be successful. It, it, it won't do that. You can't do it. But Jesus did. He calmed the waters and the waves the wind immediately. Now, they knew he could. That's why they woke him up. But they are still amazed to see what they saw. And we all would have been. In fact, you know, that instant replay thing I talk about occasionally, yeah, that comes into play here. I've been to Israel. I forgot now. What did I say last time? I added it up 10, 11, I don't know, 10, 11 times. So I've ridden on the Sea of Galilee every time I've been. And I'll tell you, there's, I guess it may be the devil in me, but every once in a while I think, wouldn't it be neat to have a storm and see what it's like? Then I think, no, probably not. Jesus is not in the boat. So let's not do that. Uh, Let's not do that today. But apparently it was pretty fierce and they knew Jesus could do something, but they were still amazed at his authority over creation. And after all, you and I know from Scripture that he is the creator of all things. For instance, here's the way Paul words it in one of the most beautiful books in all Scripture, and that's Colossians. He says, the sun is the image, the S-O-N, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, 
All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The creator and sustainer of the universe is in the boat. And so Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over nature. Now, as if that is not enough, we move to verse 26, and Jesus is going to demonstrate his power over the demonic. And this, too, happens right by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, By the way, you know this, two-thirds of Jesus' public ministry was around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, not not even the entire Sea of Galilee, just just really a small wedge from slightly to the northwest over to almost due east, a pretty small wedge of the Sea of Galilee. Right around there, Jesus did two-thirds of his ministry. And that's where he is, of course, obviously, in calming the storm. But then we go to verse 26, and they arrive where they were going. And here's what it says, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but lived in the tombs. So you get the picture. It's not a pretty picture. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. And you know who's speaking through him. It's it's the demons. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of most the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. They speak as one. However, it says in verse 29, for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now, the way Luke words this, he gives the conclusion and then goes back and fills in the details. So he goes immediately to the conclusion of Jesus casting out the demons, but then he goes back and fills in some of the detail of how that happened. So it says in verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The abyss is the place created by God for the devil and his angels. Now, verse 32, a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. There is the power of Jesus. A man who was naked, a man who must have looked awful, a man who was being destroyed spiritually and physically, lived in tombs, probably smelled like an abomination, 
And now he's seated at the feet of Jesus, completely changed, no doubt fully clothed, of course, and listening to what Jesus had to say. That's the power of Jesus. So let's, let's, let's continue reading. So he's dressed in his right mind. They're afraid. The people look there for they, they've seen this guy. He scared them to death on the road. They know what he's, what he does. Um, they may have laid awake at night sometimes being afraid of him. Well, those who had seen it told the people how the demon possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Then all, doesn't say most or some, all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone, uh, had gone out, begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So go back home and teach and preach witness. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. All right. So power over the demonic. Uh, I preached uh, probably, I, I don't know how many times I preached from this passage, either here or in the other gospels. Um, like most preachers, once in a while we try to be clever with our titles. So I have one time preached on this text and called it the high price of bacon. Uh, another time, the high price of pork. I think another time, a little more realistic, the day men preferred pigs to Jesus. So, you know, you can get as clever as you want to there. Um, but the demons had destroyed this man both spiritually and physically. It must have been an awful situation. It must have been sheer torment for him. Now understand what we what we know of the, of the demonic in scripture. I think you can be sure that this man wasn't just one day walking down the road minding his own business, uh singing a Sunday school song. Uh, he had dabbled in sin and darkness and opened himself up uh to the dark side. And so don't think that you or anybody you know who desires to honor God is going to be walking down the road one day and all of a sudden the demon's going to attack you and enter you. You know better than that. So whatever this man had done, he had opened himself up, but he did not know what was going to happen. And it was awful. It was awful. Physically, it was awful. He's naked. He lives in tombs. Uh, what, what are in tombs? Dead people. Uh, of all the places you want to live, I doubt seriously that would be on the list, living in a tomb with a dead body or dead bodies. And that's where he lived, and he's tormented day and night. It, it must have been an awful, awful existence. So he's being destroyed spiritually and and physically. And uh, th- there are many demons in him. Uh, when When Jesus requests his name, he knew it. He wanted the people around to hear legion and legion was speaking through the mouth of this man. And they legion begs Jesus, please don't torment us. Picture pure evil begging pure holiness for mercy. Well, they tremble before Jesus. 
and they don't want to go to the abyss, the hell prepared for Satan and his demons. Jesus controls the spiritual realm. He rules the seen and the unseen, and he set the man free as he set us free at the moment of our salvation. Not that any of us were ever filled with a legion of demons, but we were dead spiritually, and Jesus came into our lives and resurrected us spiritually, brought us from death to life. So what Jesus did for this demonic man, he's also done for us. Now, the people are afraid. People are, have you noticed people are afraid of what they don't understand? Probably all of us at some point. We we don't understand something, so it scares us. Um, So here's the opportunity of a generation. Invite Jesus to come to town. Stay with us. Do some teaching. Do some preaching. And probably he'll do some miracles while he's there. Come on into town, Jesus, and stay with us a while. It's an opportunity of a lifetime, the opportunity of a generation of people who lived in Gerasene. Instead, they tell him to leave. We don't want you around here. It kind of gives me a heavy heart to think about what they missed out on. Um, As they tell the Son of God, God in the flesh, go away, leave us. We don't want you here. Now, um, he tells the man who wants to travel with Jesus, he tells him to go home because that's where he lived. So Jesus has been booted, so to speak. But this man can go home. He can get life reestablished with his family. And he tells him, go home and tell people what I've done in your life. So he sets the captive free and then asks the newly freed man to tell others about himself. Um, some of you have been, one of the most exciting stops, I think, uh, around the Sea of Galilee is to go to the place where we think is a pretty strong chance that this actually happened and to just imagine in your mind uh, the, the tombs, the open caves that are up in the hills that you can visually see and then to imagine the pigs jumping over the cliff and diving into the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, in this chapter, has demonstrated uh, his teaching, the truth of Scripture. He has demonstrated his power over nature and his power over the demonic. And then next, Jesus will demonstrate uh, his power over sickness and death itself. And that's where we're going to start next um, next Wednesday. I think about that place on the cliff uh, near to the village of Gerasene. Think about where that man who was healed and where the people asked Jesus to go away. And I look at that spot and I think this is a tragic yet triumphant place. It's tragic because a village rejected Jesus. It's triumphant because Jesus made whole a man who had previously been demon-possessed. Power over the darkness, power over the demonic. And remember, we do not need to fear the devil. 
Remember what James said. Resist him and he will flee from you. And remember, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, according to John. So next Wednesday, we'll start with power over death and sickness. And then we'll move on into chapter 9, which, um, goodness, is equally as great as chapter 8. So we have a lot to look forward to in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Well, I love you. I appreciate you being here. Uh, the longing in my heart for uh get back around the tables and enjoy a meal together and some teaching. And so maybe it, maybe it's, Maybe it's coming, and maybe it won't be all that long. That's what I'm praying and hoping, and let's pray to that end, okay? Father, thank you for your precious word. Uh, Father, we love being with each other in this setting because it's the best we can do. But Father, we long to be back together again in the gym because we not only love the, the food, food, not only do we love the study of your word, but we just love the fellowship that we have with one another. So, Father, may it be soon that we'll be back in that place and bless each of us now. And may we be a reflection of Christ in our hearts and our lives in this week to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. God bless you all. Love you. Have a great day. You're welcome to stay on for a while if you'd like to do that and visit whatever you'd like to do.